If you would be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52, we'll be in verses one through six this morning. And as you're turning there, I have a question for you uh, that I think is really important for us to answer because I think it's, it's something that I hear I myself wrestle with an awful lot. I hear it from you all that you wrestle with an awful lot. Um, and so the, the question is this, what does real everyday life look like? Right, I mean, it's, for, for each of us, it's different. I mean, there's phases in which, uh, for those of you who are in college, those of you who are in high school, uh, your days seem to be structured around trying to get this thing accomplished and get through something. And so your focus is on a distant horizon. For many of you uh, who are trying to figure out what's next, you oftentimes struggle with being present where you are in the everydayness and the journey that is becoming, right? You want to already be. I want to already be in college. I want to already be married. I want to already be a mother or father. I want to already be rich. I want to already be whatever it is that you're looking for. You're kind of in that phase. And for others of you who have graduated from all that and you are any and all of those things, uh, poverty may be in there as well. Uh, and so... Um, um, you recognize that you wish you'd have paid more attention to the process, that you'd have been more present. And for you, you are living out maybe what you feel like is this uh, Ecclesiastes on Groundhog Day repeat, right? Uh, the, the dishes rise and they fall. The laundry uh, amasses and it, and it gets put away and then it scatters back out again. Uh, the workday begins and it ends and there's always this seeming tyranny of the urgent and there's this unrelenting nature to our existence that makes us sometimes say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, call it. Let's just move on to whatever's next. It's gotta be easier than this, Right? And there's a sense in which that is a, a good confession because what is coming next for us is better than this. It is not Ecclesiastes in the sense that we will just repeat over and over and over life under the sun in a fallen world in, in, in our brokenness. But what's interesting is we are between the now and the not yet people. We actually live an overlapped life, meaning we are current residents of a fallen world in which Ecclesiastes is very true for life under the sun. However, we are citizens of no earthly city or country. We are citizens of the heavenly city that is going to descend in the new heavens and the new earth, which is known as Jerusalem or, or Zion, which are terms that are very important for us because they're not just about geographic locale. They're about the dwelling place of God. And so we are a people who live in the now, which is very much ruled by the tyranny of the urgent, is it not? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you don't have to pay your light bill, right? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that your taxes don't come due, even though some of you think it may mean that. It, does, and it still does uh, for a season. And so uh, we still have things we have to do. You still have to change your oil. You can't just pray for your car's engine. You must change the oil, Right? And so, uh, and same is true for lawnmowers, as it turns out. I don't know if you knew that. Jack would be proud to know that I know that. Uh, and my wife didn't tell me. I figured it out on my own. Uh, and so, it's important that we recognize that we do still live in the place where stuff falls apart and needs taken care of, and uh, we, we have to deal with things that seem meaningless. 
But because we are in Christ, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, because the clock has essentially stopped for us, do you know you are a people of eternity for whom the clock doesn't have the same meaning as it does for those who don't know Jesus? And so therefore, you actually live as a people indwelt by hope and defined by hope, not hope fingers crossed, hope accomplished and applied and coming again. And so we are a people of an overlap that get to live in a very interesting way that grants meaning to the quotidian, everydayness, Ecclesiastes type reality, which, by the way, would have a pretty interesting impact on our neighbors if they could bear witness to it. And our coworkers, if they could hear us talk about our marriages, our children, our jobs, our communities, our politics, our justice in a way that doesn't sound as defeated and despairing and shrill and hopeless as most of what else is being offered. So when I ask the question, what does real everyday life look like and then what does the resurrected life look like, they look very much the same. Even if you're in Christ, you still got to wash your jeans. You still got to have clean undershirts, unless you're Robbie and don't wear undershirts. You still got to, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Kelly got it first, you were next. It's just part of the order of things this morning. Right, but, but there's still, all that stuff is still in play, but is there a way in which we can view it that is actually different, Right? that we can, we can actually see uh, the things of everydayness infused with the very glory of God. Can we approach these things in a manner and a way that evidences who and whose we are? And that's exactly what Isaiah is trying to get the people to understand here in chapter 52 based on the person that comes up in 53 and the reality that is to come in chapter 61. And so this is a question we need to wrestle with and think through and be awakened to. So the key truth that I'd love for you to get from this sermon this morning is that God calls us to live the resurrected life by awaking from our stupor, arising to newness of life, resting free from sin, and knowing that he is with us in Christ. Having said that, if you would turn to the text and let's read verses one and two. If you would give your attention again to the reading of God's word. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself off from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion." Now, what's important about this for you to kind of think through uh, and that we don't have, uh, we just didn't have the time for the sermon series to do is Isaiah 52 occurs in what is the third book of Isaiah. Now, different scholars say there may have been different authors and all this kind of stuff. I don't, I don't want to get into all that this morning. Uh, ultimately, the author was the Holy Spirit and that's what matters the most. But, but chapters 40 through 66 are a wonderfully and beautifully constructed set of poems and narratives and various things that are essentially God declaring his love for his people. It begins in Isaiah 40 with comfort, comfort my people. 
Now, what you need to know is historically where they were, they were in a time where there was great fear in their country, politically. And they were seeking after help from all their former enemies, Assyria and Egypt. And they were trying to pit politically against these different nations that used to be. Is this sounding familiar at all? We do know that East of Eden history just has this way of repeating itself. We, we fall back to the same ways, the same methods, the same old fears. Just because we have iPhones don't mean that our sin is any different than those who did it live. And so it's important that we, we see they struggle with the same things we do. And this fear had gripped them so much that their kings were compromising. Their prophets were lying. The, 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 the priests were not teaching the people. And God was going to send them again into exile. Now, always remember that God's judgment, his justice, his discipline is always, always, always for the purpose of drawing his people back to himself. It always serves the purpose of calling a remnant or a larger populace back to him so that they would know that he loves them. And so... Here, what he is saying to them is not that I am sending you into exile. He is promising them, you will come out. And this is him rousing them to let them know. What's interesting is the parallels with the story in Exodus. And you remember, he told them, be ready, dress, ready to go, because when the last plague drops, you will need to leave. And so in the same way, he's preparing them and saying, hey, it's time to get up and go. It is time to rise from the dust of death and sin and the exile that has caused you to not be able to worship me in spirit and truth. It is time for you to take my name upon you and glorify me in all the world. And notice how he starts off. This language is very important. He says, awake, awake. Now, what does that mean their condition was before he said those words? They were sleeping or in a stupor of some kind. Now, this is very important for us because we spend a good bit of our lives blind and unaware of, in a fog, in a stupor, to the glory of God at work around us. This goes back to that initial question, doesn't it? When we can't see God in the everydayness of our marriages, in the everydayness of our parenting, in the everydayness of our work and our serving our neighbors over the years, when we can't see that he is using all of those things, we usually start trying to make changes, don't we? Changes that are very unsettling. We start blaming those around us for our unhappiness and our despair and our stupor and our blindness. And so we start looking for a different set of circumstances, don't we? We start looking to lovers less wild. We look to our old enemies, don't we? Somebody we knew from high school on Facebook is a common one. And so, so we start chasing after anything but God who is already with us. So this stupor that we have, this slumber that we are in, is the equivalent of us being blind to the glory of God, which, by the way, if you read the New Testament, is a common thing they're being delivered from, their blindness to who Christ really is, to what's really going on. Did you hear Thomas? Yeah, we, we'd love to follow you, man. We don't, we don't know the way. He said, yes, you do. 
It stands in front of you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there were other places where they would say, we haven't seen the Father. And he says, yes, you have. You've seen him because you've seen me. And so we would be foolish to think that we've progressed so far in history that we don't still struggle with this same stupor, this same slumber, this same blindness to the glory of the, the Lord at work in our lives. So when he says, come awake, he is calling for us to look and see that he is good. Think about these New Testament passages, one of which that we dealt with when we went through the book of Colossians. It's a key passage, always has been for me, which is Colossians chapter 3. Remember what it says. In fact, Paul says basically, look, if you are resurrected, if you're of the resurrection, Christ is in you. You are risen to newness of life. Look to the right hand of the Father where Christ is seated on high. Don't look to the things of the earth. Your life is hidden with him. And it will be revealed when he comes in glory. What's he saying? Turn your eyes from the fog of the earth. Turn your eyes from the dust of death. Turn your eyes from who the world says you are. Look to where Christ is seated, where it has been declared what you are and you will be for eternity. And it is out of that that he then says, put off or put to death what is sexually immoral. And he goes through all these things. And then later on he says, and put off on the beautiful garments, which are the attributes of Christ, the attributes of God. Notice the same language here. He says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. And then he goes on to say, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. So what is the strength of someone who is imprisoned or in exile? Not much. Not much. Now, there's ways in which it's set up, but when you lack freedom, you are reduced to have to, to work out of the most base ways of survival. My father spent 29 years in prison, or stepfather, 29 years in prison. I learned a few things. Not all of them good. And so, so what we know is that when you are in that condition, it's hard to know that you've been set free. But he's saying, your strength, Zion, is not in your failings. It is in my love for you. Put on this beautiful garment that has been laid out for you. He's saying, arise to newness of life. The same garment language shows up in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. It says, not that we're going to put off our garments and be exposed and naked as we come before the Lord. No, we will have better garments to cover up and swallow up all of that death that encases us. I love that. Life will swallow up death because it's bigger than death. But most of us live as if death is the most feared of all realities. It's not. Not for those of us who know what's coming next. And so this, this garment language also reminds us of Genesis 3. Remember? When Adam and Eve discovered that they were naked and they were ashamed of one another, even after all what they'd been through together and what they'd been created for, they're now cut off from each other. God shows up. They don't want him to see their nakedness, so they run and hide. It takes him calling for them, for them to respond. And notice their response is not in faith. 
It is only after he makes the covenant promises and clothes them himself at the end of chapter 3 and gives them the promise that they will be redeemed through the seed of the woman, that they actually are able to walk with him even though it's now east of Eden in a harsher world where the ground will fight back and pregnancy will be much harder and their relationship will be a greater strain. But it's not over. And so he says to them something they would have known to be true and something we know to be true in Christ. Remember, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Did you know that? That as you stand before God, whatever it is you did this week is not the present news. It is not the bad news that comes before the throne of grace. It is the good news. Now, I know that that's unsettling for many of us. Like, we have a hard time not thinking, there, there has to be a reckoning. There has to be an accounting for these things. There was, you see. And it was in full, paid in Christ. The totality of your sin, past, present, and future, was laid on him so that a beautiful garment could be laid out for you. His righteousness to be worn, imputed to, and declarative of who and whose you are. And so when he says to them, awake and, and put on your beautiful garments and put on, uh, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. He's saying, no more unholiness will, will, will affect you. Now, for some of you who kind of bristle at that and you're thinking, well, there ain't, ain't no way I'm getting in. There needs to be an asterisk by your statement. You're right. There is no way you're getting in. There's one way. And that way is Christ and Christ alone. You are correct that if you try to use your uncleanness as the means by which you can demand entrance into the holy city, the new heavens, the new earth, where Christ dwells with his people for eternity, you're right. Based on what you've done, you will not get in. However, based on what Christ has done, applied to you in faith by grace alone, through God's will alone in Christ alone, then yes, you will be welcomed there. What you were is not what you are anymore. And you may say, yeah, but I just, I mean, I laugh at improper jokes. I, I, I sometimes watch R-rated movies. Uh, I've been known to eat a taquita roll from that Circle K all that's sin, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Pump the brakes. Think, just take a deep breath on that one. Uh, but but is, that, is that how you get rendered out because you're not keeping it fully together? Is, is there something you can do to eclipse the cross, really? And if you can say there is, what does that make you? The Antichrist. That means you can undo what Christ has done. That makes you an anti-God of sorts. Well, since you're not eternal, this isn't going to work out well for you. And so I would suggest that you not boast in your sin. That you, you not take away or try to, to rip yourself from the very hand of Christ, but instead celebrate the gospel. Now, am I suggesting that you should celebrate your sin and sin boldly? No, I'm not. In fact, it should humble you. It should humble you all. 
that God would pick people like you for any reason to display any of his glory on any day in history. And what that should move us to do is worship and adoration, which is what he's calling for. Dawn that beautiful garment. Rise from the dust of death. Rise from the things of the earth. And then immediately says, and take a seat. Take a seat where? With him. At his table. I can't help but think of the story of Jonathan and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is crippled and he doesn't feel like he's welcome. Not Jonathan, I'm sorry, David and Mephibosheth. Where he feels crippled and unwelcome at the king's table because of his infirmity. What does David do? He says, if you're not welcome at this table, neither am I. Come and dine at the king's table. Think about the story where Jesus and the disciples are going along and there's this Canaanite lady just pestering the stew out of them about her daughter being, being redeemed. She's a Canaanite. What does, she, what, what does she deserve other than hell itself? So this discussion breaks out where Jesus doesn't even acknowledge her. He's talking to the disciples. And he's exposing their heart that they think there's a group of people undeserving, which means there has to be a group of people deserving, right? If somebody's undeserving, then somebody's got to be deserving. And he has this side conversation, and the Canaanite widow shows the greatest faith of all. She says, even the crumbs that fall from the master's table are worth everything. And he turns to her and he says, great is your faith, your daughter is healed. He turns back to them and basically is like, yeah, she gets it. And so what we see here is that the call is to come and be welcome at the table of God, to dine with him. And we see that in beautifully in Revelation 19 in the marriage supper of the Lamb itself. We see it throughout history every time we come to this table. He's saying, come and sit and be well fed and be served. That's what's so beautiful about it. It's the first thing he's saying to them. Awake, rise from the dust and newness of life, and take a seat and be served. That pattern is all throughout history. It's actually a creational pattern of sorts. Think he creates Adam and Eve on the sixth day, and I'm not arguing a length of days here, but the next day in creation is the Sabbath. So he creates them. He says, rise from the dust of the earth filled with the breath of God. Now take a seat and enjoy from all of these trees except that one, and you'll get to work tomorrow. Think of when Jesus calls people to himself. The first thing he says is rest in your forgiveness. Rest in who you are in me. You have donned the beautiful garment. You are now royalty. Now, I don't feel like royalty most of the time. I don't know about you. I did grow up in a trailer park after all, in apartments, and a drug culture, and was abused. I, you know, it's hard to feel like royalty. When the first time you go to a nice restaurant and get in trouble for thumping peppercorns off the table because you thought it was funny. And there were like eight waiters, and I'm like, I'm not tipping but one of y'all. And my girlfriend had said, he grew up in a trailer park. So I get it that there's lots of reasons to not feel like royalty. To not feel like you have any ability to come to the table. But that's the wrong order of things. 
It is the royalty of Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father until he rises to make all things new, who makes intercession for us, who grants us the fullness of the Holy Spirit, who declares the glory of Christ and God in and through us in all of that everydayness, that resurrected newness of life. It is because of what he has done that we get to come to this table. There's a scene in Prince Caspian toward the end when, uh, when Aslan is opening a door to, to Telmar and is inviting his enemies, the Telmarines, who had just been at war trying to kill Prince Caspian and everybody else that they could. And he says, basically, you are welcome to go and dwell in this new place. And, and, and you know, it's a good thing and a bunch of them fear it. But there's one guy who comes forward who's a, who's a bold warrior. And he comes up, and I love the way that C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, as soon as the lion's breath came about him, a new look came into the man's eyes. He was startled, but not unhappy, as if he were trying to remember something. You see, we have had Christ breathe the Spirit into us. We are recreated into his image. It is not that we are startled. It is not that we should be afraid. It is not that we should in any way, shape, or form try to keep God from doing what, uh, calling us to the various things he's gonna call us to, even if it is every dayness. And there ought to be a look in our eyes that people can tell as if we are constantly trying to remember something, and that something ought to be the goodness of God. That we are a people awake to a world that is filled with his splendor and his glory, even in the hard places. I remember being at the rescue mission on many occasions as a chaplain over 10 years and bearing witness to some of the most beautiful things I have ever seen among some of the most broken people you've ever met in your life. There was one lady in particular, first night Susan ever came, I think I've told this story before, but some of you may not have heard it. Susan, I never asked Susan to come. I didn't want her to feel like she was pressured into coming. Um, I wasn't sure how it was gonna land on her, but she wanted to come and serve. So the first night out of the gate, I see her talking to this lady and I can see Susan's eyes getting bigger and bigger. And it was startling. Uh, and so she waves me over and I come up and I say, hey, what's going on? And the lady that was talking had complete flat affect. If you know what that means, she had no emotion whatsoever. Not in her face, not in her words, nothing. And she said these words. She said, uh, my husband beats and rapes me every single day. And he has taught our 10-year-old to do the same to our six-year-old daughter. Huh. And the, uh, all the, like it got real quiet in here. All the air just kind of went out. Same thing happened for Susan at the rescue mission. I've dealt with that stuff a whole lot. And I said, well, well it's, it's great to have you here. And, uh, and, and we'll be praying for you. Now you might say, well, that ain't a whole lot. Well, a few months later, and it's not just because of us, it's a whole group of people. She, that woman got up with one of the biggest smiles you've ever seen in your life at the Christmas party and gave a testimony of the goodness of God as she was being restored to her children and she could see the work that was going on. And man, it was beautiful. But it was a hard place to start. How do you see beauty? How do you think that anything good can come from that? 
And I don't have all the answers to why the Lord allowed her to go through those things. I am not about to suggest that it is those things that actually, you know, he, he put her through that specifically to do certain things. That's beyond my pay grade, actually. But what I do know is that despite the fallenness of this world, it did not have the final say in that woman's life. He said to her, awake, awake, and put on the beautiful garment. Rise from the dust of death that has just been all around you and that your husband has poured out on you. His wrath is not my wrath. His love is not my love. And I love you. And so he says to her, come be with me. We saw that on many occasions, but you have to have eyes to see. You have to have ears to hear. Do you? Are you walking in resurrected newness of life? Are you awake to what's going on around you? Can you sit in the forgiveness of God? We spend so much of our time, I feel like, trying either not to be wrong or for people not to know we're wrong or that we've done anything wrong. Like we don't believe that the gospel truly, in fact, sets us free to newness of life, to be able to confess the truth. We spend most of our time trying to convince people that we're perfectly fine without them or him. What a waste of time. So, if you would hear the words from J. Alec Motier, he says, notwithstanding the priestly house of Aaron and the royal house of David, the ideal of a royal priestly people, which is Exodus 19, four through six, had never been realized. That's really important. That the defining thing that God wanted his people to be in Exodus 19, a priesthood to the nations fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, it had never been fully realized. But while Zion slept, a marvel occurred so that on waking she finds new garments laid out, expressive of a new status of holiness. And this is no delusion, for as she rises, fetters fall and a throne awaits. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. That while we slumber, God is at work, laying out the beautiful garments so that when we respond and wake to the truth of who he is and whose we are, we can put on those garments and royalty and sit free from sin and death, served by the Lord himself, now, it's going to lead to us serving, but that's next week's sermon. If you would, turn back to the text, and as we turn back to the text and look at verses 3 through 6, think about this question. What are the current barriers to you living the resurrected life? I think you really need to think about this question. What is keeping you from applying the fullness of the truth of the gospel in your life? What is keeping you from being able to be loved and to love in a way that is reflective of God's love, which is last week's sermon? And then what are, the, what are some of the ways, and this, is really, this question really is for your meditation on this Lord's Day Sabbath, but what are some of the ways in which God is or has called you awake from your stupor? How good is God that he says, I don't want you to miss this. There's something so good going on in this broken and fallen world. Don't listen to the shrill voices that are saying that it's over. You know how long we've been saying historically we're not going to make it? 
long, 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 long time if you read history at all. It's not to say that there won't be bad times. It's not to say that every culture will remain, i.e. the Greeks and the Romans, they exist in books and fragments and statues. And so may we someday. And then how has God called you to arise to newness of life and rest free from bondage of sin in Christ? How have these things, these calls from God, while you were asleep, doing nothing, except resting, think about that, resting in exile. How might it be worth giving praise to him this day that he's done all these things for us too in Christ? As we turn back to the text, we're gonna see that he's gonna wanna make sure that we know that he is with us in all of this. Listen to what the text says. This is verses three through six. He says, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here? Declares the Lord and, and continually, uh, I'm sorry, what have I here? Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here am I. Now, what's being said here is that they were sold for nothing, they'll be bought for nothing, and the reason that he can say that is the Assyrians, the Egyptians, everybody who's enslaved the people of God have no claim to them whatsoever outside of how he has used them to draw his people back to himself. They are merely vessels and agents of his sovereign doing. They cannot seize God's people for themselves and do what they want. Ultimately, he will say who is free and who is bound. And so he owes the Egyptians nothing. He owes the Assyrians nothing. Now, you might say, well, what about Romans chapter three where it says propitiation, all that stuff? Well, wait a minute, who is the debt owed to? God himself. Who pays the debt owed him? You? No, God himself. It is God himself who is owed our worship and our glory and our obedience. It is God himself who is owed our holiness because he made us. And even though we have failed both in Adam and in our own actions, he says that will not have the final say. I am not purchasing you with money. You are not a commodity I am going to come for you through my name, through my presence. Notice what he says, that as they have gone after the Egyptians, the Assyrians persecute them, all their enemies are, are basically celebrating that they have come to them instead of going to their God. And what does that mean as far as their gods are concerned? They think their gods have been victorious. So the leaders, instead of leading in worship, all they do is wail all day long. Does this sound familiar at all? Just whine instead of actually leading the people into worship where the solution really is. He says, and my name is being diminished as a result of this. I will not have it so. And he says, I 
will make my name great among you again. And he uses those faithful words that we know from the Exodus, here am I, here I am. So what he's saying is, know that I am going to be with you. Know that I am going to deliver you myself. Know that you are not a commodity. I am delivering you to relationship because I love you. And what we're going to see next week is, is because of all that, that he invites us into the work that he's called us to. And we get to participate in this glorious story of redemption. And here he says that once again, it is the presence of the Lord that will serve to bless his people. And that's the meaning of the words Zion and Jerusalem and Judah. Whenever we see those things, those aren't geographic realities. Those are the places where God dwells with his people. That's why it's called the new heavens, new earth. It's going to be the new Jerusalem, the place where God will dwell with his people. Hear what John Oswald says about this part. He says, when we live as captives to sin, we make it appear to the watching world that God is unable to deliver us. Do you hear that? Let me read that again because I don't, I want to make sure you hear this. You ready? When we live as captives to sin, we make it appear to the watching world that God is unable to deliver us. When our lives are not marked by his holiness, we make it appear as if we, if he is just one more of the gods, not the unique creator and redeemer of the world, whose moral character is unlike that of any of the so-called gods. For us to know his name is not merely to know facts about God. Did you hear that? Reformed people, did you hear that? Intelligent people, introverts, unite. Dyslexics, untie, different. Did you hear that it's not about knowing facts? It's not. Hear what he says. Rather, it is so to participate in his life that his nature and character become ours. See, some of us think that it's okay to just stay the prodigal and just keep showing up for the party and then go back out again. And what you're addicted to is the party. You're addicted to the high of God's redemption and love and you being received once again. That is not the point of that story. See, when we act as if there is no imperative out of the indicative, we are saying to the world that none of this really matters after all. So what are some ways in which you've experienced the presence of God throughout your life? And better, how has that affected how you live? What can we learn from Isaiah 52, one through six? Among many things, it teaches us that God calls us to live the resurrected life by awaking from the stupor of sin and death, arising in newness of life and resting in freedom from sin in Christ. And then secondly, that we know that he is present with us in Christ. 
Now listen at this closing quote from Barry G. Webb, who's not one of the BGs, although he sounds like one. This is a really important quote, and I want you to hear this, because there's, there's some of y'all that are good people. You're good people. But you're not living out the gospel. And you're afraid that if somebody knew what they knew about you, that it would all come untrue, as if your goodness holds it all together and not Christ's. Some of you are so beat down, you're not good people. And you know you're not. I'm numbered among you. And you recognize that I don't, I don't know how I'm supposed to hang with this crowd. I don't know how I'm supposed to keep it cleaned up enough to pr pretend enough to make Jesus look good. Good news, you ain't got to make Jesus look good. He actually makes you look good. Lean into that. Hear these words. What 52, 1 through 6 does is to challenge Zion, of which we are numbered, by the way. You can't say that's, that's just a bunch of the Jewish folk. No, Zion is all the people of God who will dwell with him. It challenges Zion to see herself not as her enemies see her, or even as she sees herself, probably the greatest enemy of all, but as the Lord sees her, which is in Christ, redeemed, beautifully arrayed, full of strength, full of beauty, royal. Now, as we have heard that, what a gift that we get to come to the table this morning. That we, where we sit, get to be served because of what Christ has done for us. Because of the finished person and work of Christ, there's nothing we need to add to that to be worthy of this table. Do you understand that? While we do call you to prepare, what we're asking you to prepare for is receiving a gift as an honored son and daughter. You're not preparing in the sense that you are perfecting. You're not preparing in the sense that you're making worthy. No, you are preparing to receive because you've been made worthy. Which is why we send out that preparatory letter to remind you of who and whose you are. Think about how this table says, awake, arise, sit and know. Think about what Jesus wanted them to have throughout history before he would return. Right? What a gift that he loved us so much he wanted to make sure there was a way that we would hear it, see it, and taste and know that the Lord is good.